This is the Startup Guide to Growth. Scaling and growing a startup requires marketing, sales, product, talent strategy, and so much more. At Sapphire Ventures, we bring you actionable growth strategies that can help you scale your company with insights and stories from accomplished operators. Ready to grow your company? Then listen up. All opinions expressed by Sapphire and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions or views of Sapphire Ventures, LLC. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes and should not be construed as investment recommendation or otherwise relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Rui, thank you so much for joining us. I wanted to ask if you could provide our listeners with a bit of background on yourself. Where are you from? Uh, how did you end up as the CDIO at Eric's? Yeah, of course. First of all, thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, so my name is Rui Pedro Silva. I was born in Portugal 35 years ago. I wouldn't say I was a very technological savvy uh, <laughs> youngster. Um, it happened almost by accident because for, well, for several reasons, but the, mo- the, the most important one is because probably is the industry that was paying the most 17 years ago. And I ended up in Eric's mostly because they are running, they want to do a big transformation in their in their in the organization. And, and it's a manufacturing, is a wholesaler distributor. So it's very part of a very low digitized industry. And I came from AP Maersk, where I was the chief product officer for e-commerce logistics. So not much of a digital technology role, but rather really an end-to-end commercial sales, uh, marketing, product management type. And one of the cool things at Maersk is logistics, let's say 10 years ago, wasn't the sexiest thing in the world, but then it developed to become, I wouldn't say a sexy industry, but it at least developed to become an industry where there is a lot of things going on, also on the startups, on the, on, on the investments in these technologies. And I think that's also what I want to try to bring to Eric's is to also help shaping not only Eric's, but the industry where we are part of. And uh, so far, they have trusted me for that. <laughs> I would say that what Maersk does now is probably pretty sexy, given all the supply chain conversations you'll see in the news and all. But back to your current role. So you actually have two titles, I noticed. There's CDIO at Eric's, and then there's CEO of Eric's Digital. So what does that mean for your responsibilities? Yeah. So there is an history of Eric's Digital. So Eric's Digital is now, I would say, the digital arm of the group and is focused on pretty much all the technologies that are used for our online propositions and our you know, e-com and some of our digital services. And it's also where we do our backend technology. But historically, this came from a startup called Zamro, which was a, a kind of a digital twin created by Eric's back in 2016, focusing on trying to sell and create a kind of an online presence for our manufacturing industry. And this developed to then became Eric's Digital. So my role is not only to digitize Eric's as a company, but also to create and innovate in new business models and to grow our existing digital business models. That is e-com, but it's also smart asset management. It's also data as a service so that we have few uh, commercial propositions that in my role, I'm also responsible to help driving it. So I wouldn't say it's a commercial legal entity because we don't necessarily have a massive PNL to grow as a target, but it's more into the sense of we want to serve Eric's 
not only to build technology to run end-to-end processes, but also to be more innovative into these more digital type of markets. Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating. It's a good story that brings it about. So you mentioned this earlier, and Eric's is effectively industrial services. It's aimed at you know manufacturing, helping facilitate processing and products or lubrication, power transmission, polymers, safety, so on. So I'm curious what a CDIO does for such a manufacturing physical goods oriented company. Yeah, I asked my I asked the same question back in Jen when I got my first conversations with Eric. So I, I already know the industry somehow because I worked as a CTO for Trelleborg Sealing Solutions back in 2012 with a kind of a competitor in some kind of parts of our industry, especially in the ceilings part. I think it's evolving. So if you ask me, probably 10 years ago, the CDO role wouldn't really exist here. It would be pretty much be a, a very traditional CIO type where you manage your stack, your ERPs, your CRMs, and you just make sure that everything is running. And that would be the core of that role. The reason why this is evolved is, well, first of all, there is a big development into this industry 4.0. And in our case, digitizing, it's also about connecting the customers to our channels, not only from an offline perspective, but also from an online perspective, and also creating services that are using technology. So I mentioned smart asset management as an example. So we have a service from Eric's where we have sensors deployed in our, in our customers' manufacturing plants, and we are collecting data and utilizing artificial intelligence with IoT to create some kind of a predictive maintenance and ultimately being able to serve products that help fixing machinery before it breaks. So this is a type of service that, let's say, 10 years ago would be very hard to have in place. But it is, at the end of the day, a digital service we offer to our customers connected with some kind of physical service that we also have to put in place. So my role is a bit is a bit about that, right? Is how do you bring the CIO type technology of a CIO type of role into the game, but also how to bring a bit of a different perspective in creating services that could be leveraging data, for example, and smart procurement and and helping customers to be more efficient in their own productions by leveraging our data. And that's that's where my role comes in. And and in in this industry 4.0, where there is so much to do, I keep saying customers of ours, something like Shell, Heineken, Daimler, Tesla, those are really big brands with big production facilities. They depend massively to be a very highly digitized company on their end. They depend massively on companies like Eric's who are not in the front face of a magazine, but rather in the downstream operation. But they depend heavily on us to be digitized for them to be also digitized. And that's the level of influence we can have in this type of industry. You mentioned this phrase, industry 4.0, a couple of times just now. I'm not totally sure that everybody listening would know what that is, but also for my own edification, I'd love to hear what your definition of of it is, given that you're so close to it, and it's not just something that I'm Googling and reading about myself. Yeah, it's always tricky to find these very sophisticated definitions. For me, it's it's all about connecting, connecting industries and connecting the different parts of the value chain in this physical world that is not money or insurance policies and so on. So a lot of this world where we produce goods, we transport goods, we go down to really physically do something. 
it's very it's highly disconnected the problem is in order to be able to serve to a consumer level these type of areas have to be connected to improve the overall service what i call this kind of industrial revolution with in this area is really about connecting industries and connecting components of the different parts of the value chain in order for us to really elevate the service on an end to end level not only for erics but really for an, from from an end to end perspective right Okay, I want to come back to that because I'm curious about some of the specific solutions that you mentioned. But I have a really kind of a high-level question, and that's what is decision-making like at a company like Eric's? I mean, you mentioned it's been around for a while. This is a, a manufacturing-oriented company. What does it look like when the team decides to roll out a new tool? I'm imagining there's thousands of employees and a bunch of processes. So so how slow, how hard is it? You know, Are you dragging your feet to do it? What's that like? I came from Merce before. Well, I think it's it's really it's it's harder in a company of in the size of a company like Merce to take decisions. In a company of size of Eric's, it would probably be as hard as that. But historically, it's a company that came from the I don't know was built from the ground and is a bit of still a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset because it's a family-owned group from SHV, so it's. It's not like you have to deal with markets and shareholders outside of the, the family. So it's really, there's a lot of mindset of fostering creativity, which sometimes also causes uh, running in a lot of, lot of different directions without a real strategy. So in our case, I think there is not a lot of politics going around. It's really a very healthy environment to work with. What we are trying to do is to also focus on decision making. Because sometimes this this entrepreneurial mindset also drives you to do a lot of different things in parallel, and some are important to do in parallel, but then you also might not be able to focus on the right things to deliver your strategy. So I think my issue is not so much about how to move and make decisions in a slow process, is how to control the decision-making process in order for us to focus on the right things to do. We don't have unlimited budgets, and, and we have to be able to deliver what really makes a difference for the company and for the industry. You've made it sound as though the culture is very, very open, much easier to work with in, in comparison maybe to other companies that might have more shareholders and, and you know larger spreads of ownership in that way. But, but how difficult has it been just with the type of company it is to bring forward innovative technologies? So, you know, we said industry 4.0, we're talking smart sensors and IoT. These are in some ways, cutting edge. So is there a lot of convincing to move from that old, we've done it this way many years mindset to here's how you have to be successful today? Not really. You know, that's interesting. So I'm here for seven months and we released our new strategy a few months ago that is focusing on a lot of those things you mentioned. There is a very, very good acceptance for that. And I think it's also because some of our country or regional managing directors, they are also smart people. And they understand, which I think is something we, we have to be proud of. They understand the value of the technology. I, I can't judge if they always understood, right? So I don't know them all for more than a few months. But I sense now that they have a clear understanding of the value of leveraging these technologies to gain market share. We are in a very fragmented market. Companies that leverage technology and they leverage in a good way might be able to gain market share by being ahead of others. And I think our leadership understands that. And therefore, it's, it's not been very hard to put this in place. I think the hard thing is to quantify value. 
and not that you have to make it scientific, but it's easy to have ideas. It's hard to identify which ones really make the difference for, for a company in regards to market share gain or in regards to downstream process optimization. How, how do you make those blockbusters to be the ones we are focusing on and still kind of be innovative in some others where we don't know, but we might have a, a feeling that this could be a good idea. So this balance between testing out new things and focusing on things that we kind of know that will make a difference for us has not been very hard, but it's still a process of edu education on how to figure out and how to balance these decisions. Hmm. That sounds really interesting. And also sounds a little bit like there's a, a good learning culture and atmosphere that just because it's new doesn't mean it's bad. We want to know what it'll do for us. Back to the question earlier of Industry 4.0 and being smarter with the technology. I'm curious, what are some of the solutions that you're looking at that will help Eric's business? What are these new, innovative, connected, sensor-oriented solutions that are really top of mind for you right now? Yeah, so I think that there are a few, few examples, and I mentioned the smart asset management is one example where we are leveraging sensor data with artificial intelligence to deploy predictive maintenance in, machine, in, in manufacturing plants. I think that's a, that's a big move for us, and I'm, I wouldn't say it is something new for because it's not, but but it is for it is for for us something we are investing a lot. There is a lot of automation in processes, a lot of automation. Also, we're trying to automate also our physical operations. And one of the key areas is real time data. So when we think about a wholesale distributor, we are thinking about a heavy supply chain based organization, right? So. When someone buys something from a marketplace or from an online channel or from an offline channel, ultimately we have to deliver the O-rings or the valves or the gaskets to the customers in the delivery times we promised. And it also requires quite a complex supply chain to be managed that often includes third-party suppliers, third-party providers. Having the ability to manage this with real-time data and be able to action on data to prevent issues to happen or to, to move things from a direction A to direction B, it's a big relevance for us. And we're talking about the supply chain. It's what they are focusing, right? Visibility, data-driven, actionable insights, trying to be more flexible in the supply chain to be able to reroute and redirect depending on specific factors that might happen in a specific day. So th there's no difference from us. No, of course, we are not a supply chain company that is selling supply chain services, but we are heavily depending on supply chain. Okay. And then when it comes to these components and their rollouts, I'm curious, please estimate this because it's probably, it changes a lot, but what is the timetable from initial ideation to execution of one of these new things? Does it take you a year, six months, three months? Are you POCing it? How are you putting these new technologies into your company at some sort of scale? I would say it's hard for me to answer that also because we're not here. I'm not here for more than six months, right? So it's, it's not that I have been in multiple cycles of innovation, but I, I do think that we have to have two kind of ways of thinking. One is something that is not necessarily trying out something new, but rather scaling something that we believe it's a good thing for the organization. I don't have to make this fast. I need to do this fast enough. So it doesn't have to go fast and be really up there in the next week. It needs to be, of course, fast enough, but needs to be done properly because it has to be scaled. And one of the biggest issues we have in corporates is 
we somehow all got blind by the startup environment. And we believe that startups can put things up in a week, which means we all have to do the same in a week. Well, that's not really true. Well, it's nice if we could, but the fact is the environment is different. You have more change management. You have more people to deal with and put the technology up in a week. It won't solve anything if the rest of the organization doesn't understand it or doesn't use it correctly. So there is there are factors we have to take in consideration. And while we might we want to think like a tech or startup in some things, we have to accept the complexity of a large organization and also take that in consideration. From an innovation standpoint, that's a different story, right? Then what I would like us to be able to do is to try concepts faster without major investment. So try to focus more on an hypothesis-driven development. What are the things we want to validate? And how do we find the shortest route to validate that without having to make massive technological developments to try it out? We are in an Amazon, and we have to be conscious about it. We aren't an Apple or a Microsoft. We don't have the same amount of funds. So while trying, failing, and failing again is a nice thing, we have to be mindful about our limitation in regards to funds, and therefore we have to test and validate as quick as possible with the lowest investment possible and be creative around that. So I, I cannot give you a date, but let's say if you have an idea and you want to try out something with, with an automation or whatever, it's cool if we could have, in a matter of weeks, you start seeing some examples in a, in a production environment, then you can see if this is really getting anywhere close. And then you learn with it, then you try in different places and you validate your hypothesis in a different place before you start scaling and putting a lot of money into that. The Amazons of this world, the, the large techs, the innovation around the startups, it, it puts an enormous pressure on a company like Eric's because of this sense of everything, it's cool and everything is fast. And that's not always the case. Mm, that's very well said. Yeah, we are in a lot of the tech industry, we're conditioned to really move very quickly all the time. And especially with a startup coming to a large corporate, it's, it's, we'll save you this much time, we'll save you this much money, we'll make this faster. And logically thinking about how that's going to occur and how it's going to get in is a very different conversation internally at, at each company, which is why there's never a one size fits all or there's never really even an, a, a ubiquitous solution. I mean, everybody kind of has to choose what works for them. I'm curious from your perspective, because you are you know, in this role for seven months, you're previously at Maersk, you're not, and forgive me for the, for the, if this sounds strange, but you're not working in a technical company, you're working in a company that's industrial and manufacturing oriented, and you've been so for a bit. So how do you stay on top of technology trends? I'm at a VC here, I'm constantly being introduced to companies. And when I was at a different company, that was a tech company, there's new solutions coming in from IT all the time. But, you know, that's kind of your job. So what do you do as as a CDIO, how does a new solution catch your attention? Yeah, that's a very good question. So just to give you my personal example, I'm, I'm doing a PhD in, in web science and technology, for example, which doesn't necessarily tell me all the new technologies, but, but at least helps me to also find mechanisms to be on top of research and academia where some of these things sometimes pop up, right? You're doing a PhD at the same time as all the yeah. rest of the work? Wow. Okay. Well, now I feel worse about myself. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's websites and technology. And, and that is a good example of how to stay on top. And, and you know, it's interesting because when I, when I have to make choices between going to a conference and try to read an acad- a more scientific article, I, I tend to go more to the scientific articles. I think in some of these research, you get 
some of more factual numbers, right? More factual cases, more, well, if the research is done properly and if you're not using a, <laughs> some kind of a predative, predator journal, but assuming that you're getting, get, you're getting into a good source of academia work, you really find very, very powerful exercises of research and, and tests and validations into the market, which is not only about digital transformations and sociological things, but really about deep learning, right? Uh, deep tech. And for me, that's a really amazing experience to do because I'm, I don't know if I'm top of everything that happens, but I really get exposed to so many different things that I don't even dare to use in my <laughs> day job. But I would say my main source is my PhD. And, and then it's to do with being active in, in social media, being active in conversations with peers, talking to startup guys. I, I've got a lot of friends that have been founders, co-founders. So it's kind of being also close to this ecosystem. It's probably my way of doing that. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good way of doing it. I think it's also important to know you also have your own podcast, which is probably an interesting element for people to want to listen more about what you're saying and how you're progressing. What What is that about, by the way? So I, I have what I call, to take a moment, think about it, that it's a lot about bringing some small tips, small things about technology and product management not only product management for digital products, but really as a practice and a lot to do with how to find the cutting edge, how to find your competitive advantage, how to understand value, this this triangle of value, customer problem, right? What are the key problems you're trying to solve and what is that going to make any life, the life of anyone better? I like to explore that a lot. In fact, I, I, believe, my, I believe to be much more of a product person than a technological person, if you know what I mean. Of course, uh, technology is the key of it, but it's really about understanding this triangle of customer problem and value. And then I have another one, which is completely different. that has to do with social responsibilities called Talk It Through, where I talk to people across the globe that are doing um, extra mile to make someone's lives better. So ordinary people doing extraordinary good things. There's a lot of people I've talked to that are doing things that are really mind-blowing, which makes me feel quite small <laughs> in this world. I mean, the more the more you tell me what you're doing, the more I'm wondering when it is that you sleep. But that seems to be the case with a lot of very, very accomplished people. Back to the, the core conversation here. I want to ask a bit of a role play, if you will. Nothing too weird, but I'm curious. Let's put you in the shoes as the chief revenue officer at a startup that has an IoT solution or a sensor-based solution, and they're looking to break into Eric's. They're looking to try to sell you their product. They're trying to get in front of you, or they're trying to get into whatever situation that gives them the leg up. So what are some key, maybe two or three key things that they would need to know to get a software or a hardware solution like theirs accepted by your company? Yeah. Back to what I was telling you before. Um, about this, this triangle, what I don't really buy, if someone comes to me and says, I have a fantastic solution that reads data from a sensor that is doing a great thing with IoT, I would say, that's fine. You have it, a hundred other tons of people has it, and maybe I can also have it, build it myself. So I really need to understand what is that the problem that you are solving that I cannot solve myself and why you are solving it better, faster, and more scalable, right? I'm not talking about money, so I don't go for cheaper or more expensive because I believe money is only linked to the value you are, you are creating. 
And sometimes I get approached by companies that tell me, I look, I have these uh, bunch of software developers here and there, and uh, do you want to hear about it? And they don't even care if I have a problem with it. I don't even care. And when I always encourage people when they want to talk to a company, and like you did, right? You, you told me about Eric's, you told you mentioned about our industrial verticals and so on and so forth. It's to do your research, understand what is Eric's working on, and potentially what problems you think our customers be facing on that we might not even have thought about it. Because we are not necessarily a tech company thinking about technology every day, right? As someone approaching us, you need to put that perspective. Forget for a second Eric's and think for a second the customers of Eric's. And why you are bringing something that might make Eric's win specific things in the market or be better than someone else. Bring that competitive advantage that might make us win. And if we win, then they win too, rather than try to sell me something. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that does. It's a little bit of the the idea is less like don't sell me, but but partner with me. Because as much as the the idea is transacting and making contracts, there's an investment the startup's going to make in order to even get your business in some way and work with you. And and that investment is very obvious now as a venture firm. You know, we look at that kind of thing and say, okay, well, how long does it take to recoup the initial sales costs with the ARR that might come? And this is how you from my experience in the past and being in sales, the best customers are the ones who look at you as a partner and say, here's the technology I need, here's the solution I'm going for, here's the future idea that I have. And that breeds a better relationship. So it's not just like, hey, it's this time of the month we, you know, we're owed billing. It's more a CSM who's really tied and close to you and making sure that they're working with you. Yeah, 100%. Let me just give you and I'm nowhere chief revenue officer, so I don't want to be arrogant enough. But what I would always like to do is I like storytelling, right? It's how you get people to understand where you're coming from and what, you, what is it you're trying to tell them. And if I look at Eric's, I would always try to think about what are the, what are the two, three different customers that Eric's might be working on in oil and gas or whatever, right? Or in food, leverage, food beverages industry type. And think about who are those customers? If I would be an Eric's company, who are those companies that are looking for industrial services, industrial products, and so on? What do they do? How do they operate? And then think from that perspective to understand what challenges I have as a CDIO and people that are working with my teams and position from there. Because then your product becomes a, a logic consequence of you understanding the problems I face and you positioning that in that perspective. But that will also help you to understand if I'm even the right customer for you to approach or lead for you to approach, right? Because you might try to sell something for someone that has no interest or no value to get out of your product. So for you to also focus on the right things and the right people and the right companies for you to approach, you have to really be able to understand what problems they face. Mm. Can I ask about POCs? Um wondering, do, do you do them? Do they work? I feel like I've, in my life and in the research, it's like, it feels like a coin flip to do a POC. Yeah. You know, one of the issues of the POCs is, some, is, is sometimes defining what, what is it you want to get out of it. And back to one of the, the things that I mentioned before, I really like this hypothesis-driven development. But what is that you want to get out of it? Like, for example, let's go back to my times at MERS. We wanted to test the multi-user fulfillment network, which is a little bit like a fulfillment by Amazon, but for non-Amazon marketplace. Before we bought Hub, or we bought different company as well, 
we wanted to understand if there was a way for our customers to understand that product. Would they really buy it? So what we did is we created what we call an MVP approach, which is was a non-software-related MVP. It was how do we find a small partner that can somehow test this in India and Pakistan and in Southern Asia and in few areas of Europe without really building a software, just getting a partner that has already a system there where we can move orders through and kind of create a sales proposition that to see if the customers will want to talk to us. We kind of did a POC, right? But then we could also validate the pricing. We could validate if the proposition was correct, if the customers were understanding it, if there was an idea of maybe we are not going in the right direction, maybe the customer segmentation we were using wasn't correct. Because we defined the hypothesis we wanted to validate, we could confirm and discard the ones that were relevant for us to then define our acquisition path and what kind of companies or what kind of capabilities we want to build to offer to the market. And if you transfer this mindset to a POC in either in a large organization or in a smaller organization, is it often doesn't really, I wouldn't say it is successful or a failure because it doesn't tell me anything. It just tells me this, the, the software works. That's great. It's software works, but, and so what, right? Is the quote faster now? Are we confirming that we can operate on two euros for an end-to-end pick and pack in a warehouse? Like, what do I get out of it rather than the software works? What I'm 100% sure, I wish I, at this point in time, is that the software, it will most likely always work because we are in a phase where technology is just cutting edge. That's not the problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It works for your environment. It works for your scenario, for your process, for your organization, for your customers. That's what you have to focus on validating, not if the software works. Yeah, it's a bit of a the value selling part of it, not just what we used to need to do in the past, which is making sure you're selling what you say you're selling. But now, what does it do? What's my ROI? What's I'm actually, what am I actually gaining from this? I'm going to ask one last question here, and it's a macro question. I like this question because you and I sitting in Europe, we're watching this cascade, this rise of the European startup scene, European technology scene. You're a native European. I'm coming from the US. So I'm, I'm, I'm having like a little bit of a different view on how it all is. But I'm curious, what do you think from your perspective in the seat that you have? What is the role of a big European enterprise in innovation and fast moving startups that are based out of Europe. How does your decision-making help progress the region and progress the technology? Or does it not even matter? And you say, I don't care where you're based, I just need this thing to work. Tough question. First of all, I I would have to separate that in a few angles. I think, first of all, the, the larger organizations have to be less arrogant in the sense of you are driving an industry, but at the end of the day, you have to accept the fact that there is a group of people probably equally or smarter than you that are ready to disrupt you, even though you have not really thought about it. Ignoring it won't help it. And we have seen that over and over. And I think companies that have embraced this relationship with startups and this ecosystem have been successful. I go back again to Maersk. <laughs> it's always easy for me. But Maersk has an area called Maersk Growth which is pretty much a venture capital arm of the company to invest in early stage supply chain technology. And some of those startups, they were seen as pure venture VC approach, but others were also seen as partners for the development of the organization. And we had two examples. One was the hub, which was acquired by Maersk then as 
a digital hub for the supply chain of e-com. Another one is a company for returns in the logistics where Maersk had a huge stake in and they were partnering across the globe as an offering. And I think that's a really smart way of going is how do you act as an investor in some of these organizations to also help them developing their technology and accepting that they might develop something better than you and may, you may potentially acquire them. Or, or if you don't, at least you understand that they are raising your own bar. So you have to be better on what we're doing to not get shut down by these smart people. So I really like that because it really gets everyone on their toes. You know what I mean? It's like when you're playing in a team and there is a, a second guy that is training much harder than you and you know that if you don't get your game, you will take your place. I really like that positive competitiveness and less about where they are. On the other hand, there is also a bit of a, a risk that larger corporations, they become paranoid about this tech and about this startup environment and they lose their focus. Again, you have to understand what's your place in the market and why customers would want from you and not from someone else. And that's your focus. That needs to be your focus. It's not what a specific startup is building is keep developing your competitive advantage. And if you don't find one, then that's your problem. That's not because a startup is coming that that problem arises, right? You already had that problem. It's just making it visible. So I, I think this kind of environment of raising the bar, it really needs to help larger corporations to think in a different way and get out of the silver tower. It is really beneficial to have these emerging technologies, emerging groups, emerging companies coming up all the time as if you don't get paranoid. And if you leverage it and if you partner it, and I'm a huge fan of innovation in larger corporations being done with startups and not like building your own, but investing in startups because that will help fostering that innovation also for industries. And if you have power, you can also buy them later. But if you don't, even if you don't buy them, you you kind of raise the bar for for the for the industry to to be more innovative. And that's really is not for your own value or your own benefit, but really for a greater benefit in the industry. And, and I I do strongly believe we have to companies have to also understand that they are part of an industry and they cannot continuously act in isolation. The better the competition gets, the stronger we also have to get. Yeah. I like the idea there too. It's working strong, working with strong companies and helping them be successful. I, I know with startups that they're only really as good as the reference customers they have in a lot of situations. And the way that introductions to further business come, they often often have to do with who their customers are and who can recommend them. So if they've worked with you and you really like them and you recommend them to the CIO at Maersk saying, hey, you know, we have a relationship and this is a really good company you should take a look at. That's leaps and bounds better than any marketing that anybody could ever really do because that's that's a knowing introduction. So that's where the ecosystem can really help and build and rely on itself. And I know that we have a lot of excitement towards this market. So I'm glad that you have that perspective as well. Rui, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you for taking so much time and walking us through all of this. It's fascinating to hear how your brain is working on digitizing and new technology for a company that is doing these really, really core manufacturing processes. So I thank you so much for taking some time and really, really appreciate it. Great pleasure.